1: Conspiracy
2: show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740, and welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett. You found us. This is the one and only conspiracy show heard throughout Ontario, Quebec. And in about uh, 28 states, I think, on AM740, Zoomer Radio, around the world on ZoomerRadio.ca, and of course the podcast, and our growing list of affiliates in the U.S. And we now have a new affiliate we'd like to welcome, KINX-FM, Great Falls, Montana. That is our first affiliate in Montana, the treasure state. I'd like to know why it's called the Treasure State. If there's anyone listening, you want to send me an email or, or uh, say hi uh, on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Why is Montana known as the, as, as the Treasure State? In any event, uh, great to welcome KINXFM, Great Falls, Montana, to the uh, Conspiracy Show, and thank you for adding the Conspiracy Show to your weekly program schedule. Uh, I want to thank also... Uh, I've been uh, really negligent in doing this. I want to thank Chris Whitting and the team at Syndication Networks in Chicago for all of their hard work and uh, their, their faith in, in me and this program and their continued uh, loyalty to this program. I really appreciate everything you're doing for the Conspiracy Show. So Chris and everyone at Syndication Networks, thank you. I had a wonderful time with Jim Mars last night on Coast to Coast discussing ancient aliens and the Illuminati. Uh, I also spoke with uh, cryptozoologist Dr. Carl Schuker about gigantic spiders. (laughs) Notice I didn't say I enjoyed our conversation. (laughs) He's a wonderful man, very knowledgeable, but let's face it, giant spiders are not something I really want to contemplate. Uh, however, we uh, we had an interesting chat. Uh, but, but Jim Mars, uh, his book, Our Occulted History, if you're interested in the role that ancient uh, aliens or ancient astronauts um, may have played in the development of human civilization, that's a great book, uh, which also deals with the cover-up, Our Occulted History by Jim Mars. Uh, and we talked about... Uh, one of the things interesting things that Jim had to say was if, and I never thought of this before. We were talking about how human civilization developed, the role of ETs going back to the Sumerian civilization, and he mentioned something I thought was very interesting. We all, you know, the development of wine and how we 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 came to invent, if you will, wine. Makes sense. It's fairly simple, right? Some grapes were lying out in the sun, they got a little fermented, somebody accidentally drank the juice and said hey this is kind of good and they replicated the process but think about beer beer is very complicated there are a number of ingredients you've got barley you've got hops And you've got to ferment that that didn't happen by accident and uh, as it turns out in the, the the Sumerian cuneiforms which have been translated according to their creative their creation legend the Anunnaki gave mankind the recipe, if you will, for beer. Uh, so uh, that was an interesting discussion. And, and speaking of which, uh, one of the the favorite uh, uh, Twitter uh, Twitter rather Twitter applications that I follow is called Unexplained Pictures, and they've just tweeted a remarkable picture of a 2,500 year old artifact found in Istanbul, which many believe depicts a rocket ship and uh, I've, uh, I've just retweeted it actually at Richard Serrett, I want you to, to check it out let me know what you think it's a photograph of some sort of a, a stone carving and it looks for all the world like a rocket ship, keeping in mind this thing is 2500 years old again, I've retweeted it at Richard Serrett, uh, check it out let me know what you think You can uh, email me through the website or say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief is going to check in here after the first break uh, to discuss the shadowy world backstage in the Global Theater. We'll talk about the fallout from the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri. Things are starting to quiet down there, thankfully. Uh, The grisly beheading, of course, of American journalist James Foley at the hands of ISIS. And we'll also talk about the the latest developments in the Ebola outbreak in Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Congo. It's starting to spread now in Africa. Uh, Before that, however, for the last several weeks, uh, you've heard me discussing a very um, special event that I'm very proud of. Uh, to be organizing. It's called Follow the Truth, a conspiracy show summit, and I'm bringing some amazing speakers to Oshawa's Regent Theatre on November the 16th for an all-day conference-style event. It's a very intimate, exclusive engagement, and for the next several weeks, I'm going to take a few minutes at the beginning of each show to introduce you to our scheduled speakers. And I- I'm looking forward to presenting all of these remarkable people, but I want you to meet someone very special right now. His story, if, if you attend... Follow the truth. His story is going to make you, it's going to inspire you. It's going to make you cry. It's going to make you laugh. It's going to make you think of some pretty wild possibilities. Dr. Ronald Mallett is a professor of physics at the University of Connecticut, best known for his research on time travel. In fact, he's working on a theoretical time machine. He's also the author of Time Traveler, a scientist's personal mission to make time travel a reality, which... I believe, has been optioned by director Spike Lee. So, Dr. Mallet's life could be up on the big screen at some point. In any event, I'm very excited and privileged to be able to, to share the stage with uh, Donald or Ronald Mallet at Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, November 16th in Oshawa. Dr. Ronald Mallet, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. How are you? Fine, Richard. How are you? I'm very well. And... Um, I don't, I don't want you to obviously uh, – we can't in five minutes uh, you know, discuss what you're going to be presenting at the, uh, at the uh, Follow the Truth Summit. But just uh, for people who have not heard you speak and are not familiar with your story, just give us a tiny little glimpse of what, we, what you'll be presenting.
3: Yeah, right, Richard. You're, you're absolutely right. I won't be able to discuss all the details of the possibility of time travel uh, in just five minutes. But uh, basically, my story – is due to a tragedy that happened in my personal life when I was 10 years old. Uh, I was the oldest of four children. I grew up in the Bronx, New York. And my father, uh, who was the center of my life, was uh, was a television repairman in the Bronx. And uh, he looked like he was very healthy, and he worked very hard. uh, And the thing is, is that even though he worked hard, he had plenty of time for the family. And... The thing is, is that we didn't know he had a weak heart, and he died of, suddenly of a massive heart attack when he was only 30, 30 years old, 33 years old. And, um, you know, it's hard for me to believe, you know, 33 is like... <laughs>
2: he was a kid. I'm he was a, a kid. Child,
3: you know, yeah. still child. A young, young person. And um, I was 10, and it shattered my world. I mean, it turned it inside out. And after he died, I mean, I just really didn't care whether I lived or died. But he left me many gifts. I should mention that after he died, the family plunged into poverty, and I don't know exactly how my mother was able to pull us all through. Um, But by the grace of God, she did. But the thing is, is that um, among the gifts he left me was a love for reading. I love reading and love reading science fiction. And about a year after he died, when I was about 11, I came across H.G. Wells' book, The Time Machine. It was actually a classics illustrator version of it. But in it, it said that... um, Scientific people know very well that time is just a kind of space, and we can move forward and backward in time just as we can in space. And when I read those words, I mean, it was like manna from heaven. It was, it was, uh, it was a safety net. It, it told me that if I could figure out how to build a time machine, I might be able to go back into the past and see him again, and maybe save his life. And so that became a passion of mine. I mean, I should say a hidden passion because. I was very depressed at that particular point and even at 11 I was astute enough to realize it probably wasn't a good idea to tell people I wanted to build a time machine. So I kept it as kind of a secret. But the key here is that a couple of years later I came across a popular book that opened up the real possibility it was about Einstein. And Einstein's work shows that time travel really is a possibility. And that part would take too long for our short discussion, but just to tantalize people scientific possibility of time travel is real and we have been able to actually send things into the future and we're working on the possibility of sending things into the past
2: it is it is remarkable uh, i mean what what is so compelling about uh, your story uh, dr mallet is not only the the technical aspects the theoretical uh, aspects uh, but the the human element uh, that that you bring to it uh, and I, and i can't wait to um, to see you once again and I know that people uh, who attend the Follow the Truth Summit on November the 16th are just going to be so inspired by your story. I want to get a quick take uh, from you. Now, this story goes back earlier in the summer, but uh, further to your point about the possibility of time travel, uh, physicists at the University of Queensland, Australia, simulated time travel. It was announced back in June using particles of light. The researchers achieved this by simulating the behavior of a single piece of light, a particle of energy, traveling on a closed time-like curve, which is a closed path in space-time. And uh, the the report says that the work may help to understand the long-standing problem of how time travel could be possible in the quantum world and how the theory of quantum mechanics might change in the presence of closed time-like curves. So, uh, not that you necessarily need further vindication i mean your your research is pretty rock solid, but you must have been uh, pretty excited when 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 this story broke back in june i 'm guessing
3: well, I am on a number of different levels. number one is the fact that um, this really this it 's a simulation that 's important to realize, but nevertheless, the thing is is that it does point to the real possibility of time travel. The other aspect to me is the fact that now it's out in the scientific community and being taken seriously. That, to me, is extremely important. When I was growing up, that was not the case. And for serious scientists to be engaged in this is something that, for me, is extremely exciting. And I'm, I'm very happy that's happening in my time. So, yes, it, it, it's really, you know, very exciting.
2: So we will see you in Oshawa at the Region Theatre November the 16th. That's uh, November the 16th this year, 2014, the Region Theatre, followthetruth.tv for more details. That's the website, followthetruth.tv, and to order tickets, 905-721-3399. And if uh, you're listening to this program, and if you use the code word ROSWELL, You'll receive, when you're ordering your tickets, use the code word ROSWELL, you will, you'll receive a 25% discount, 25% discount on your ticket order, 905-721-3399. And uh, Professor Mallet, thank you for spending a few moments with you, and I will see you November the 16th at the Region Theatre.
3: It was my pleasure, Richard, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing you and to doing the presentation.
2: All right, stay well, my friend. You too. Joel Skousen. Standing by from World Affairs Brief is going to check in after this first break to discuss Ebola, James Foley, the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, and more. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Joel Skousen is a political scientist by training specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory. He's also a designer of high-security residences and retreats. He was raised in Oregon and later served as a fighter pilot for the U.S. Marine Corps during the Vietnam era, prior to beginning his design firm specializing in high-security residences and retreats. And, of course, he's a regular contributor to The Conspiracy Show, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, which is now back in publication, available as a weekly email newsletter and also, I believe, a monthly print edition. Joel Skousen, how are you, my friend?
4: Good. Uh,
1: Just a correction. There is no print edition. It's all email now. Ah,
2: All email. All right. And that is a weekly.
1: Right. That's correct.
2: All right. Before we uh, dive in, Joel, let's uh, let people know how they can subscribe to World Affairs Brief.
1: Well, the World Affairs Brief is showcased on my website, www.worldaffairsbrief.com. And people can get a free sample issue prior to subscribing by simply emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com dot com.
2: I um, I haven't talked a lot about this on the air, uh, but I I do want to get your your take on the Ferguson riots, uh, the, the the tragic death of uh, Michael Brown, and uh, you, you draw an interesting comparison in your World Affairs Brief, uh, comparing it to the uh, the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles.
1: That's right. You know there are quite a bit of similarities. There's a lot of police uh, abuse. Uh, Uh, In Los Angeles, uh, and granted, there's a lot of policing problems with the uh, black minority community in Los Angeles, as there is in the St. Louis area, which has a large uh, contingent of uh, African Americans there. And there are a lot of problem people, a lot of welfareism. Most uh, families are single-parent families, Uh, husbands abandoning their families, so a lot of teenage problems. Uh, growing up, uh, getting involved in drugs and delinquency, et cetera. So I, I'm not saying that this is, I mean, there is some justification for the fact that there's a higher percentage of uh, blacks involved in crime and problems in the St. Louis, in, even in higher proportion to the 63% that they represent there in Ferguson. In but it's also interesting that police tend to get a very calloused, and rough, aggressive view to bad-mouthing all blacks. And, you know, despite the fact that there is a, a trend towards problems within this minority group, uh, or actually a majority group in, the, in this town, it never justifies police dropping their in, in necessity of making an individual decision and treating everyone with respect until there is definite evidence that we've got a problem person here. And uh, so... It does look like, you know, when you start with uh, the F word and start, you know, get the F off the the street and onto the sidewalk, you're starting off on the bad foot. And, uh, you know, there is some very interesting things that are bothersome about the later police accounts, which tend to justify the fact that Michael Brown, uh, the uh, person unarmed teen who was killed, was a problem person, did have a record. But what's interesting is that these come from leaks, not from direct, public statements from the police chief, and they didn't come in a timely manner. If you were going to avoid a riot, which is very, very obvious, it's going to come when you've got a lot of resentment against police and you've got a lot of police resentment against the black community and their high crime rate, the way to defuse that is to say, hey, look, we have evidence of the police officer. This guy's a rap sheet, uh, you know, quite long. It's not the innocent teenager you think. And he actually beat up the cops so bad that he's had a concussion. And, uh, you know, that statement right from the very beginning would have given at least some reason that, hey, there's there's definitely some both sides to the story that people ought to look for. You
2: know, if that, that were that true, man, though, Joel, if, if the police officer had been throttled by Michael Brown prior to the shooting, you would have thought the police would have immediately uh, published photos uh, to, to, to prove that point. But they didn't.
1: Absolutely. And that's why I'm saying this is very strange to them have – and we still haven't had any police official statement coming out and talking about the damage, supposed claim damage, you have a leak. And it has to come from the police department because only they have access to his previous rap sheet, and they published it. Only they have access to the witness testimony that they're claiming. And because it doesn't come from an official, we can't trust it. And so it doesn't solve anything. It just clouds the issue and looks as if the police are perhaps, as they have in many other cases, dropped evidence or falsified things after the fact in order to prove the case or, or defend the case of the shooting. And we know that this has happened many times in the United States, whether they drop drugs or they plant a gun or a knife on a person after they shoot an innocent person or a person who hasn't uh, uh, deserved that so that they can justify it. And so we got to be very, very careful with this kind of record of police abuse in the United States. We don't just take their word unless they show us some evidence, and we have no evidence that any of this defense of the policeman's story is true. It hasn't come from any official stories but from leaks.
2: The other uh, interesting uh, thing that you point out in the latest edition of World Affairs Brief is the security camera in the convenience store where Michael Brown, we were told initially, uh, had stolen some cigars and began bullying the shopkeeper. But now in that video, it appears that Michael Brown put money on the counter and paid for those cigars. What can you tell us about that video?
1: Well, and that's an interesting story in itself. First of all, the, the owner of the store has not filed charges. The police has not filed charges against uh, Damien, who was the accomplice, so-called accomplice or companion of Michael Brown. And obviously, if he were an accomplice to a robbery, they should have indicted him. He's still alive, and there's nothing to that. The store is charges. pressing charges, uh, they, he's been, and the store owner's been interviewed and they basically say, we're not going to discuss this, we want to maintain good relationship with the community. Now this could be a fear factor, basically they're going to get boycotted if they speak out against Michael Brown, but the video does show that there's money on the counter, there may have been a di- dispute about price and charging, about him wanting a discount or something, but it clearly wasn't enough for the, for the store to file charges
2: what what part of the problem do you th- attribute to the unloading of excess military hardware into the police into local police departments
1: well this is the story that you know I focused on here is this this just backfired on the government they had been unloading for free you know Mrap vehicles these are mine resistant vehicles that weigh tons and they're damaging the streets. They're very costly to maintain. Uh, armored personnel, carriers, special, you know, SWAT team gear, automatic weapons. Here you have this picture that I focused on that came out of CNN where they were talking about the Ferguson story, and you have a dozen police officers in camouflaged military uniforms, Kevlar helmets, face uh, shields, gas mask on, uh, knee pads, uh, armored vests, uh, ammo pouches, and automatic weapons with laser sights, all dozen pointing at one guy with his arms up. No weapon in his hand. I mean, this tells a thousand words, Richard. What, you know, you you give this kind of military equipment to a bunch of police officers who then say, ooh, isn't this cool? We get to be like Rambo out there in the movies. We get to go running around clearing buildings and pointing weapons at everybody. It's general police. You never point loaded weapons at people unless there's a threat, and yet you have these dozen people pointing automatic weapons. I'm sure with safeties off at an unarmed individual, and this is just symptomatic of what we have. You give people military equipment, and you train them, and they get all hyped up because I know the training. I'm a former military officer, former fighter pilot. I know what the military training is like. You go into high-intensity, close-quarter combat, clearing buildings, aiming weapons at everybody, shouting orders get down, get down, and and it's just not appropriate for police work. And then you take the fact that in the riots you have looters looting and the police do nothing. That's the same thing that happened in the Rodney King riots. They let people riot, and just like that in Ferguson, Missouri, people had to take arms and defend their own stores because the police were driving by and they weren't stopping any looters. I mean, boy, what kind of dichotomy is that, Richard? Automatic weapons pointed at protesters who are unarmed, and yet they do nothing with looters.
2: Joel Skousen is with us, editor, publisher of World Affairs a Brief, and it is available as an, uh, a weekly email, and we'll tell you again later how you can subscribe. We're talking about uh, the uh, the tragic shooting of, of Michael Brown and the fallout uh, in Ferguson, Missouri. Things are starting to quiet down there, but um, the other aspect of this is, uh, aside, you know, the, the main thing, of course, here, was the... the Clearly, the, the unnecessary shooting uh, of of this um, individual, Michael Brown, but in the fallout, we have now journalists, reporters being arrested. We have uh, a police, uh, and this has been revealed in in a video, pointing guns directly at protesters and members of the press, yelling, "I'm going to kill you." I mean, this is yeah, clearly
1: I'm F, using the F word, "kill you." In other words, this type of you know, this kind of military bad-mouthing of people is all present in the military. And I objected to it as in there. Nobody wanted to, you know, curtail that. And it gets over into the police forces, especially when they get this kind of militaristic training. And they have to go away. They're off the, the patrol beats. They're out. And, and the taxpayers and the local areas have to pay thousands of dollars to have these people trained at these military bases and come back all gung-ho with this kind of bad-mouthing caustic language, which only inflames people, and then it, journalists. We've had several journalists arrested, and you have this threatening of people and take their cameras away. I mean, the police are out of control in this country, and of course Obama, you know, says that I'm going to review this and have a review panel. You know darn well that his handlers are not going to let him do anything about it. This is just reacting to the public outrage at all of this militarization of equipment. And even the bill by one Democrat who comes out to try to say we're going to rein this military equipment in doesn't actually do anything like it. They're just going to study the fact and they're going to make people justify but they're not going to take this stuff away from people. Uh,
2: I guess one of the things that I find curious is, or the questions that I have is why did this seem to – Blow up in Ferguson, Missouri. Why? I mean, people argue back and forth. Michael Brown. He was a bully. He wasn't a bully. It doesn't matter. He doesn't deserve to be an unarmed individual. Never deserves to be uh, d- d- deserves that fate. But why, for example, didn't it happen in Washington, D.C. last year with that horrible situation with this poor mother, Miriam Carey, uh, who had a child, an infant, in the back seat, and was shot? Uh, for absolutely no reason, no justification. Why didn't it happen in Washington, D.C.? Why does it happen in Ferguson, Missouri?
1: Well, that's a really good question, Richard. You know, that uh, Washington, D.C. and so that we have video now of the authorities taking that child out of the car and then shooting the mother when she gets out of it. I mean, this is just so militaristic. This is so... Uh, unjustified. And, uh, you know, this should have been much worse than Ferguson in terms of it. Nobody came to her defense. And I guess because it was portrayed as if she was trying to crash through the White House. And she wasn't. She was trying to get out of there for some reason or another. And they had no business pursuing her in the way that they did, let alone shooting her, which they obviously did, to quiet her so she couldn't testify about how outrageous the whole thing was. Uh, and how she was just basically fleeing for a life because of the, um, it's hard to tell now that they're dead. As I said, dead men don't tell tales. But, you know, as I have said many times in my World Affairs news that are encountering a lot of this hype on the Internet about foreign troops, time and again, false reports of hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops on the other side of the border in Mexico or in Canada waiting to invade the United States and declare martial law That you know, this, these reports are bogus. The militarization of police, frankly, and I hate to say this, but this is the way that the U.S. is going to take down dissidents. And they're practicing using that militarization on minorities and majority minorities in, in these cities, which are a tinderbox. And it could happen again in Washington, D.C., and it probably will in other black areas because police are getting more aggressive. And Forget about foreign troops. They've got enough soggy police being trained at the local level that they're going to take down dissidents using the, the typical uh, blocked-in free-speech areas. Uh, we're, we've lost a great deal of our liberty in the United States despite the strongest constitution against it in the world. And uh, we're seeing it happen. It happened in the Boston Marathon bombing. We have people routed out of their houses with hands over their head, without a warrant, and, and APCs or armored personnel carriers rampaging through the street, all because of what? A couple of fugitives loose. There have been... Futures are loose in other towns before, and you haven't had this kind of militarization
2: response. Well, it's only a matter of time before there's another Michael Brown incident, another Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, we'll have to watch and wait as that unfolds. Uh, listen, we'll uh, take a out, come back, and I want to get your take on the uh, the horrific beheading of American journalist James Foley and whether that's going to be used as a new provocation for war. Joel Skousen, editor, publisher, World Affairs Brief, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. And welcome back, Joel Skousen stays with us, the editor publisher of World Affairs Brief. Uh, the beheading of James Foley, horrific uh, incident. And uh, my question to you, Joel, is: Are uh, is the U.S. and its NATO allies going to to use this incident uh, as some sort of a provocation for war?
1: Well, they're already doing so, Richard. And frankly, I'm not buying this as a real video. I mean, as, as a real. Uh, in other words, there's something – there's many things very, very wrong with this video. And the you think it might I be told, a hoax?
2: It might be a hoax.
1: Well, it's too, it's too harsh to say a hoax in the sense that I think is dead. I think he was killed. But the way in which it is presented is totally a fraud and a hoax. This was not a group of jihadists killing them because there's, in all other beheadings, virtually 100%, there's a group of jihadists yelling, Akbar, or Allah Akbar, and uh, they use a big, heavy sword to behead. They never use a knife. I mean, I don't mean to be graphic and things, but you can't behead a person with a knife. You can't get through the spine and all of that. You know, you can slit their throat, but you can't behead them. And that's why it doesn't show the actual beheading. in the, in the So... It shows, you know, the head propped up on the body laying on the ground. But something happened between the time, because all of the beheadings have shown, you know, the beheading. But here's the real problem. The real problem is that his entire, Foley's entire speech, condemning and blaming the U.S. for his death, doesn't make sense. He refers to the fact that I'm going to die, and it's the U.S. fault that I'm going to die. So he, let's suppose this is an unwilling person. He knows he's going to die. Why go through with the speech? The only reason you go through a speech is because you're trying to buy favor and stay alive. This guy knows he's going to die, all right? So why give the speech? So we can come to the other conclusion, well, he had to have actually turned the corner and become in favor of ISIS and against the United States. But there's a difference between doing that. Then the second question arrives, then why kill him if he's on your side now? Why are you going to to make him a martyr? That means that he had to agree to be a martyr. And that means he had to be much more than just intellectually turning the corner and saying, "Yeah, I guess my country's wrong." To agree to be a martyr means you've got to be a dieable jihadist. There's nothing in his background that even hints at that possibility. And so I'm left with the consequence that one without the proper background, you got an English-speaking guy who's doing the beheading. He's not using a sword to behead. It doesn't show the actual beheading. My best guess is that, you know, the U.S. claimed that they did a rescue attempt. Let's suppose that U.S. or British agents actually did a rescue and then said, now, before you go back to the United States, we need to stage something. We need to stage to really blacken the eye of ISIS, you know, to make it look as evil as it is, because we really need to get public opinion roused up at the United States and Britain about this, And clearly, the government, you know, doing just that. And I can see them talking him into giving this speech. You know, he doesn't even flinch when the guy brings the knife around towards the neck. You know, it's just perfectly calm as if he knows it is not going to happen. And then it does happen after the camera cuts or however it happens. We are not shown what happens. But it could be very possible that, in fact, he was betrayed by the British agent, you know, who talked him into giving this particular speech. And don't dismiss this out of hand. Remember, the chief counterintelligence agent of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, turned out to be a British agent, and he was personally sent. He personally sent several British spies to their deaths, who were caught by the IRA. So you can't tell me that just because he's a British agent, he's not going to kill one of his own. These people are ruthless; they will do whatever orders they're given. And you know as I have gone on print in the World Affairs Brief. 9-11 was a government operation from beginning to end, including the higher the terrorists. If they killed 3,000 people, and they did it at Pearl Harbor as well, these people are ruthless that we're dealing with, and they can dispatch a reporter if it's going to gin up a, uh, another war on terror. And frankly, Richard, I think al-Qaeda has lost its usefulness. People are tired of hearing everybody blamed and everybody being al-Qaeda. They got a new boogeyman now, and it's going to gin up another war against Syria.
2: What's uh, very interesting about this uh, video and you point this out in your latest uh, World Affairs Brief uh, newsletter is that the the British uh, Counterterrorism Command uh, or the MPS, Metropolitan Police Service, they're actually saying that even viewing this video or viewing a video of a journalist being beheaded – can be considered an act of terror as well as downloading it. That sounds rather uh, ludicrous, doesn't it, on the surface? That just viewing. What
1: it, really, what it really shows, Richard, is that they don't want people scrutinizing this very carefully. I think they see that, hey, there's a lot of holes in what they produced. But you know, the law doesn't actually say anything about viewing being an act of terror. That's just their interpretation to scare the public. The law doesn't say that. And so this shows that there is a direct attempt by the government in Britain to manipulate the news. And I also pointed out, they've said, you know, there are thousands of Brits and the Germans and the French government. Said, there are over 1,300 of our people who have gone to work. How do they know to be able to count those kinds of numbers? I mean, they couldn't give me a name of five, unless there were probably five British agents, which we know they've got to have infiltrated ISIS, because we trained in Jordan a lot of the ISIS uh, fighters and things, why wouldn't we have infiltrated
2: as well? Exactly. All right, let's get an Ebola update. Uh, when we come back, Joel Skousen stays with us, editor, publisher, World Affairs Brief. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, Ebola. Uh, both of the, uh, the U.S. citizens, uh, Brantley and Wright Bowl, uh, that were involved in charity medical work in Africa, they, were, they contracted Ebola, they were brought back, uh, uh, to uh, Emory Hospital in in Georgia, and uh, they were given this experimental drug. We're told called ZMAP, Joel, and it now appears that they both have sufficiently recovered, and they've been allowed to leave the hospital. But uh, is there any evidence that this this drug ZMAP actually uh, can be credited with saving these people?
1: Uh, none whatsoever, um, and that's why there's you know false hope for a lot of people in Africa who aren't being given the drug. Uh but I personally think that, uh, I mean, when you look at how this uh, disease uh, matures and, and how, what it does to the body, you know, they have terrible headaches, uh, extreme body weight loss, muscle pain, uh, sore throat, so sore that they can't even swallow their own saliva, Saliva don't want to eat anything, completely lose athlete, lose weak or become weak in body, uh, lose body mass. So what I'm saying is, I don't think these two would have recovered in the hot, humid climates in which they're down there. I think the humidity, the the contagious atmosphere that's down there, really prohibits a lot of uh, uh, of recovery. The body's immune system, you know, in many cases, if you're healthy and strong enough, will fight this thing off, but only if you come back to a fairly sterile environment. So there's no evidence, you know, that this uh, drug is going to be uh, effective at all and it's going to take a lot more time
2: to do that. Uh, supposedly, the virus kills 60 to 90 percent of those uh, that infects, but, but you're suggesting that it, it's, it needn't be that deadly again if the person infected is placed in a, in a sterile environment uh, and, and um, is given access to, to, to fresh water and, and, uh, and food uh, to recover some of their lost body mass. They, their, their immune system would likely be able to combat this. Maybe not in all cases, but the, the recovery rate would be significantly higher.
1: Yes, I'm convinced that that's true. And I think, you know, the CDC has been fudging the facts by saying this cannot be contracted except with sharing of body fluids. I don't think that's true at all. There are far too many health workers now infected, even using full body suits. Uh, so it clearly can be uh, transferred from, uh, you know, uh, contagion in the air uh, if you're in close contact for a long time and these people in these body suits and hundred degree plus humid temperatures uh, just lose a lot of body fluid just trying to wear those suits and so they wear themselves down their immune system wears down and they get infected so you know it's very interesting as I pointed out they're crying for foreign health workers to come to Liberia Guinea Sierra Leone and now the Congo where it's spreading and uh, they just can't get anybody to come down there. It's not enough to be charity, religious or not. Uh, everybody's really wary now. And they say that Brantley and Wrightball should go back because they've got an immunity now. But I'll tell you, I'll bet they're very, very reluctant to do so, knowing the debilitating circumstances of working in those full-body anti-contamination suits.
2: There was some discussion when these patients, these uh, American patients, um workers were brought back to the United States, uh, that some nefarious agency was going to use this opportunity uh, since they had, you know, the Ebola virus now within the borders of the United States to perhaps, I don't know, weaponize it. Uh, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, the CDC already has a patent on the Ebola virus, or at least a particular strain for it, and you can't patent anything that's naturally occurring, so it means they had to have developed this in a laboratory. And whether or not they were going to get a handle on trying to, you know, leverage this into a vaccine, or whether or not it was weaponized for military use, we really don't know, but clearly the U.S. and many other governments of the world are dealing with weaponized bacteria and viruses in order to... Um, you know, use it as biological warfare. And I wouldn't put it past our government to do that. And so it's very sad to say this, but we really can't rely on what our government tells us. There are many, many secret programs and many experimentations they've done on people that are heinous crimes really against humanity, including the use of vaccines to create uh, abortions within women. That happened in the Philippines, and they were purposely doped with an abortifacant and um, that's something they've done in Africa as well. There are statements by the very elite that they believe in massive depopulation of the world through war or through other means, and so we have to be very, very careful not to rely on government's assurances that they're in control of this.
2: I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, the, the CDC's patent on uh, the Ebola virus. As you say, you cannot take out a patent on a naturally occurring uh, a virus or um, anything that's naturally occurring. That's uh, right. So, which would tend to suggest that this particular strain of Ebola that they have a patent on has been manufactured in a lab. Uh, I mean, is there? Why is there not an outcry about this? Why? Are, why is the mainstream uh, press not investigating the fact that there is a patent for the Ebola virus?
1: Well, you know, the mainstream press has a very nasty habit of parroting almost whatever government spokes are doing and almost never criticizing. And if they do criticize, it's a very mild one. They bring it up, and they never repeat it again. Remember, the press knows that you can create any any amount of driving force within the American people if you make it a drumbeat in the news. Mentioning it once or twice in passing won't do it. In fact, if you mention it calmly, it doesn't upset. When you make it a drumbeat, then people get upset. So the media knows how to you know, put out a little bit of truth here and there. They may mention this uh, patent, but they'll never talk about or do a special on weaponizing bacteria and how deeply involved the U.S. has been. in. So well, the people stay
2: asleep. My understanding is the U.S. government has had this patent on the Ebola virus since, uh, I think it's 2009. Uh, does that mean that they already have a vaccine for it? Uh, and if so, I mean, if they're withholding that vaccine, that is, that's a crime against humanity.
1: Well, you know, we can never trust anything the government says about vaccines. Um, They have just so many problems, so much cover-up, so little testing done on vaccines, so many positive assurances. Um, I wouldn't believe them even if they said they had a vaccine. But I can tell you this about biological warfare. The reason they do specialized strains different from Ebola, regular Ebola, is so that they can develop a disease to which they do have a vaccine so that they can protect those in high government positions if they should ever unleash a bacteriological warfare agent, that they can be protected. And that makes it an even a more heinous crime.
2: Uh, Joel, every, uh, every week uh, in the World Affairs Brief, you leave readers with a survival tip. Uh, what, do you have, what do you have for us this week?
1: Well, we do. We try to, you know, give people a preparedness tip so that, in fact, a lot of our subscribers who have heard only bad news for many, many years really like this aspect of the World Affairs Brief. We've talked about everything from uh, ham radio to how to do medical and suture packs, and uh, this week we talked about edible plants, um, and we always try to give some links, It's just a, sh- a short two or three paragraphs, half the page at the most, uh, just to lead people in a direction where they can do some more research to increase their knowledge about things. We're real be- big believers that when there's a very difficult time in war someday and uh, you just won't be able to get medical drugs if you've been relying on that, you've got to know natural antibiotics, natural medicinal plants. And so that's what we focused on this week, to try to let people know what they can you know, find in their own neighborhood. Uh, there's a lot of bacterial-resistant diseases MRSA, for one, a Staphylococcus uh, disease that is completely resistant now to drugs. And uh, if you get it, you know, you can lose a leg unless you know some natural treatments and things to get around it. Uh,
2: You also focus on on dandelion uh, uh, this week. And uh, my um, uh, my in-law... My mother-in-law is uh, of Greek uh, descent, or she is Greek rather. Uh, you don't have to tell the Greeks about the uh, the benefits of, of dandelion. I mean, you you see them harvesting them along the uh, in parks and in their backyards and and uh, and cooking them. Uh, so, what what uh, what usages what uses rather for for dandelion uh, are you suggesting this week?
1: Well, dandelion is a real edible plant, and uh, it's best done with the young tender leaves once they get full grown. They're quite bitter. They still won't hurt you even though they're bitter. They're just not as tasty, but mixed with other greens and things. They really are an excellent, nutritious addition to salads. They have full of antioxidants and vitamins. Uh, so this is a very, very good plan uh, to add. and It's a simple one, and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere in the world.
2: And uh, once again, uh, Joel, how can people subscribe to World Affairs Brief?
1: World Affairs Brief uh, is, as I say, showcased on my website, worldaffairsbrief.com. There's a big red subscribe button right under the synopsis of the current brief. But as we've said, and it tells you on the website uh, you can get a free sample issue before you subscribe by simply emailing me at editor at And there's a lot of free information on the website, links to my other website, joelskousen.com where I published my three major books on uh, high-security architecture, strategic relocation, and other ways in which people can prepare, should we not be able to retain our liberty, should these globalists bring the world down upon us in war and other things, how to prepare against that eventuality.
2: And uh, what are you working on for uh, your next edition of World Affairs Brief?
1: Well, I'm really working on the big story, which is about Syria, the U.S. preparing to use this ISIS crisis, which they have created as an excuse to go back into Syria with a no-fly zone, with control of the airspace. Um, And, um, and, you know, I've always projected that this would be a backdoor. The the U.S., you know, was stopped from invading Syria and using uh, air power, as they did in Libya, uh, to take out Gaddafi. They were going to do that same thing to Assad, but they got stopped by Kerry's incautious remark at a London press conference where a reporter asked him how, how can Syria avoid this inevitable attack from the United States? Oh, simple. he could give up his chemical weapons, and yeah, that would stop it. And bam, Russia and Syria jumped on them and said, we agree, we give them up. And so and the U.S. has been stuck ever since, and they've had to even stop harassing Iran because they wanted to take Syria out before they attack Iran, and now with Syria on the, on the chill, they had to put the Iran attack on the chill. But now I think ISIS is giving them an excuse, since they're based out of Syria, to go back into Syria. They're making contingency war plans, and I'm going to be covering that in uh, Friday's World Affairs Brief of what the state of that future attack on Syria is going to be like.
2: All right. Always um, uh, fascinating speaking with you, Joel. I appreciate your time again tonight. Joel Skousen, World Affairs Brief.
1: Thank you, Richard. Good to be with you.
2: All right. Uh, I want to uh, draw to your attention a a story that I've posted on richardserat.com up in the uh, the slide carousel. It's about the effects of fluoride on consciousness and the will to act. Uh, According to the the, the, the story uh, from consciousreporter.com, new evidence has linked fluoride and other chemicals to brain disorders. What other unknown effects might this industrial byproduct added to our water supply have? An examination of water fluoridation's shadowy history reveals potentially disturbing ramifications for human consciousness. Recent research has brought the controversial practice of water fluoridation back into the spotlight, revealing links between water fluoridation and brain disorders, particularly in regard to its effect on children. Troublingly, uh, the report found that side effects do not only come from direct ingestion by children, but also from higher levels of chemicals, such as fluoride in expectant mothers' blood and urine which was linked to brain disorders, and lower IQs in their children. In many cases, the changes triggered can be permanent. This evidence flies right in the face of spurious claims by skeptics that ingestion of fluoride in low concentrations has no harmful effects on our health. You can find that, that story uh, in the slide carousel cell at richardserrett.com. The effects of fluoride on consciousness and the will to act. As always, follow the truth. You have found us. This is the one and only Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett, and uh, thanks for inviting me into your home. And also want to uh, welcome once again our new affiliates, KINX-FM in Great Falls, Montana. K-I-N-X-FM, Great Falls, Montana. Uh, still wanting to, uh, to, to learn why Montana is known as the treasure state. If any of our listeners know, would love to hear from you. You can say hello on Twitter, uh, or you can email me through the website at richardserrett.com. Always oh, stop by the mailroom on the way into the studio, and I just uh, I received this. I wanted to share this with you. This is kind of cool. Uh, hello, Richard. Congratulations on the launch of your new season of The Conspiracy Show. That's the TV program. Uh, your show is very entertaining and thought-provoking. I play in an Edmonton-based band that often discusses ideas like what you have on your show. Our recent CD is called "Love and Other Conspiracy Theories." They've included the, uh, the CD here. The first song is "The Big Picture," which explores uh, conspiracy theories, and I thought you might find it entertaining. There's also a video for the song. Uh, on on, uh, They're on YouTube, and they've given the, the link. Uh, free, feel free to contact me, and more information can be found at. The name of the band is "Market Force: Market Forces." They've even given me a little bumper sticker here. Market Forces is the name of the band. And uh, the CD is, again, Love and Other Conspiracy Theories. The first song, The Big Picture. So if you want to check that out on YouTube, I guess just uh, you could Google YouTube and uh, or or log on to YouTube and, and, and uh, put The Big Picture, Market Forces, into the, uh, into the search engine. All right. Well, thank you to uh, John Tidswell. Uh, For that, John Tidswell is with Market Forces. Uh, He did mention uh, the conspiracy show television program, Season 3. Airs Monday nights, of course, at 10 p.m. Eastern across Canada on Vision TV. Uh, This week, uh, we have the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. We explore claims that the shooter James Earl Ray was, in fact, framed. Uh, Very proud of the episode. Hope you'll catch it Monday night 10 p.m. Eastern across Canada on Vision TV. And don't forget, after watching uh, the episode, log on to our, our uh, brand new interactive website and join the debate and discussion, and you can vote. That's www.theconspiracyshow.com. All right, we're going to discuss Ebola uh, for the full hour tonight. And uh, some interesting news updates here. Reuters is reporting that a British medical worker was flown home from West Africa on Sunday after becoming the first Briton infected in an Ebola epidemic and and a separate new outbreak of the disease has been detected in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, a specially adapted Royal Air Force cargo plane picked up the male healthcare care worker in Sierra Leone on Sunday after British Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond authorized his repatriation for treatment. Uh, the Department of Health said the patient, whose identity has not been disclosed, was not currently seriously unwell. Not currently seriously unwell. <laughs> the man will be transported to an isolation unit at the Royal Free Hospital uh, in London. The hemorrhagic fever has killed at least 1,427 people, mostly in Sierra Leone, uh, Liberia, and neighboring Guinea. The deadliest outbreak of the disease to date, the, diseases, uh, the disease rather has also uh, gained a toehold in Nigeria, where it's killed five people. The Ebola outbreak has been confined to West Africa: Sierra Leone, Liberia, Nigeria. Uh, and Guinea, now a fifth country, the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa, appears to be battling the virus. And recently when I was speaking with uh, World Affairs Brief publisher Joel Skousen, we discussed uh, the two American um, health workers who uh, contracted uh, Ebola while working in Liberia. They were flown home and treated in um, In Atlanta Georgia at the Emory Hospital and they've both now been released uh, were told thanks to a a new experimental drug called Zmap although uh, Joel Skousen uh, is somewhat dubious about that claim that their recovery was uh, came about as a result of this new experimental drug uh, it It seems that uh, although the the disease kills about 60 to 90% of people who, who, who get it. If you're removed from, if, or if you're placed in a, in, a, in a sterile environment and you're given access to clean water and food, you've got a much better shot at recovering. If you can recover some of your lost body mass because there is a rapid uh, weight loss associated with the, uh, with the disease. So maybe the C-map isn't all it's cracked up to be. Well, as I say, we're going to discuss uh, Ebola over the next hour. Dr. Cass Ingram, a.k.a. The Health Hunter, one of the world's leading authorities on the medicinal properties of wild herbs and spices. He's the author of over two dozen books on the subject of natural health and wellness, including The Cures in the Cupboard, The Body-Shaped Diet, Natural Cures for Headaches, Natural Cures for Diabetes, Natural Cures for Killer Germs. And he's suggesting that whether or not ZMAP is... uh, all it's cracked up to be, obviously, most of the people in uh, West Western Africa don't have access to that experimental drug, uh, and uh, there's no vaccine on the horizon, but there is a natural protocol for treating the disease, and we're going to learn all about that right now. Dr. Cass Ingram, thanks for joining me. How are you? Good.
4: Well, great, great. Uh, how you been doing? I, I'm glad you're back home.
2: It's great uh, to be back, yes.
4: Yeah. You know, I published that Natural Cures for Killer Germs in which i put a section on uh, dengue fever and ebola but i had treated successfully hemorrhagic fever in the past in this case dengue i mean i'm not going to see a case of ebola in, in my whole life anyway so but i was i, I prevailed with the home remedies uh, in dengue down there in texas and mexico and that when it broke out there
2: are they similar dengue fever and ebola
4: that's about 25% fatal and, and it's you know so it's I mean, it's a hemorrhagic f- fever from a virus that probably has an, an animal reservoir. So
2: they're they're very similar. What does that mean, in, that it has an animal reservoir? Um, uh, well, it wouldn't
4: occur to humans if it was not for the animals that house it and don't get infected. And then somehow uh, it can, uh, just like SARS, remember the civet rat down in uh, Indonesia and China? They were eating the feces pellets as a delicacy, and... The coyotes they found in freezers in some of the oriental restaurants in Toronto. I mean, there, was, there is this animal reservoir that we know of, uh, you know, just like a tick. A tick goes on a mouse or a rat and then on a deer and then to you. You know, that's just what it is. Right. In this case, they think fruit bats and so on. But, you know, there's the Ebola thing. It's the, outbreaks, the real outbreaks have been very spotty. Can you imagine the amount of media hype on a disease that will never occur in this country unless somebody throws a vial at a fellow scientist? My God, you know, I've been interviewed probably a hundred times on this, but nobody bothered to call me about MRSA or Clostridium difficile
2: or, you know, right, which are obviously you know, more of a threat, uh, more germane to the situation here in the West. But why? Why would they? Uh, why fly these people, these workers, back into the United States and risk a possible outbreak in North America?
4: Well, that's the most ridiculous, inane thing I've ever heard of. And I've been saying that from the beginning, whether Britain, Spain, the United States, or whatever. You you don't take somebody with bubonic plague or Ebola uh, that there's no known treatment for anyway. And uh, you if you wanted to Z-map them, you could, you could just that exit to them. So this is, this is kind of a hoax. You know, it, the hoax goes quite a bit deeper. Sierra Leone is where they say the, the, the focus is. Sierra Leone lost its funding for hemorrhagic fever research. That, that entity, you know, this is very important, the, hemor- the global hemorrhagic fever uh, consortium is headed out of Sierra Leone and uh, Liberia. And that got me a bit suspicious, but what really got my blood curdling was when I saw the purported doctor victim, Blakey or whatever, the the missionary victim purported, jump out of the ambulance onto the pavement. There were no EMTs anywhere to be seen next to him. That's impossible. I mean, it was said that he was in uh, grave condition, And, you know, if you have hemorrhagic fever, your blood pools, your kidneys fail, and your liver fails, and that's why you die. And then you have that hemorrhagic uh, lesions on the skin and so on. You're not They have to be rendered supine. That's medical protocol. You can't just and they have to have IVs uh, if possible, if there's a doctor or, you know, MT present. But the main thing is they're supine, they're secure, they're in a stretcher. This guy jumps out And waltzes into the ER. Then you see pictures of him and Nancy Wright Ebola, right? That's almost her name. Just kind of smiling like they're, you know, the happiest two people in the universe. What within a week of when they, you know they couldn't have had Ebola. It's not possible. So what's going on there then?
2: Uh, Why why perpetrate this hoax if if these two aid workers Wright Bowl? and uh, the, other, the other gentleman, uh, if they didn't have Ebola?
4: Well, they work for Franklin Graham. You know, that's, he's the owner of their charity organization, the ministry organization. That's a very high-powered group, Franklin Graham, Billy Graham, right? And right. those people are connected to the espionage agencies of the United States. And then, of course, this war did not go well for the Israelis. There's a lot going on over there globally, right? So a distraction. But the big thing I, I can tell you is, it doesn't make any sense to bring these people here, and there's no proof that they had Ebola. There's no way they'd be bouncing around and shaking hands and having a press conference a week later. That's just not plausible. What what that's is the beginning the, of this? You know. What what
2: is ZMAP uh, exactly? What is this well, experimental drug? Well, that's an important
4: drug? thing. This is what's important. They say it's got some promise in the monkey research. They it's big tobacco because it's Kentucky. You know, it's tobacco. It's a tobacco leaf they do is they challenge the tobacco leaf with ebola antigens or whatever and the tobacco leaf already has an antiviral component so that gets higher and stronger so they infuse this so it's a natural thing but it's genetically engineered see there's a difference it's a genetically engineered tobacco leaf derivative which means it's patentable you and i've talked about that before that that the the pharmaceutical cartel in a conspiratorial way uh, you know, seeks to promote its patented drugs because there's no competition and they can make billions. Um, so, and unless you have uh, news and uh, the other thing is the cartel, the consortium is doing quite a lot of testing in West Africa, and so that's another part that they profit from. But the bottom line, it is a natural type of drug.
2: Yeah. All right, Cass, stay with us. We'll we'll come back and we'll talk about. Uh, some some possible natural remedies for these hemorrhagic fevers and other viruses. And uh, we'll also take some calls a little bit later in the hour if people want to ask about uh, the effectiveness of certain herbs and spices. This is your area of expertise uh, and how they can be utilized against a whole host of viruses. Listen, pe- the kids are heading back to school. This is when our house, you know, when, when we start to get sick, you know, in the fall, in September, yeah. when the little guys come home with... Um, all sorts of germs and bacteria and viruses and so forth. So we'll uh, discuss that as well. Dr. Cass Ingram is with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Uh, Before we get back to our conversation with Dr. Cass Ingram and uh, natural protocols that may uh, prove useful in dealing with hemorrhagic fever like Ebola and uh, other viruses, uh, I mentioned earlier our new... Uh, affiliate K-I-N-X-F-M in Great Falls, Montana, and I wanted to know why Montana is known as the Treasure State. That's its motto. Uh, and I just received this email from, uh, I'm not sure, a John? Is it a D. John Oak? Anyway, one of the more popular nicknames for Montana, the Treasure State or Treasure State Legend, was featured on standard license plates from 1950 to 1966. Montana is referred to as the Treasure State, Because of its rich mineral reserves, mining has been an economic cornerstone of the state, and the state's motto, Oro y Plata, is Spanish for gold and silver, which refers to two of the minerals that gave rise to the nickname. All right, thank you. I'm sorry, that was from Donald. Uh, Donald, thank you for that email, and uh, let's get back to our conversation about... Ebola. All right, so uh, ZMAP uh, may or may not be effective, this experimental drug. It may have been a hoax. Uh, but you say there is a natural protocol that involves certain extracts uh, that could be used to fight. Well, you've used it, uh, employed it against dengue fever, which is another hemorrhagic fever. Would it be effective against Ebola? That's the question. But we need to discuss what yeah. it is first. What well, is this the, natural protocol?
4: The, the, the protocol that uh, we used, and also the research that was done on the SARS virus in in, in vitro, uh, is is the use of very famous to you the P seven three oregano oil. And also the orega resp, which is a combination of wild oregano sage, cinnamon, and cumin uh, extracted uh, under steam distillation and dried to a dust. Uh, so that's the protocol we used in the uh, you know the research on the influenza, a, the SARS, and the cold virus. Now, uh, Ebola is not any different than any other virus because the mechanism of action of the spice oils. whether used topically or internally, is to cause dissolution. Uh, It's also known as escharotic change. What that means is that it eats the lining of the germ. So it's irrelevant what virus you're dealing with. Under electron microscopy in Saudi Arabia, a study was done on herpetic viruses and cold viruses and others. and, And they found that When you add the oregano oil, it causes disintegration of the virus's sheath, and they just die. They desiccate. They're gone. And that's what we found, whether it's herpes or hepatitis C or hepatitis A or cold flu, dengue fever. Nobody's done Ebola. We're not making the claim with certainty, but on a presumptive basis. It just destroys them, and that's it, you know, and and it's safe. You can use it aggressively. You know, if you have to take it on the hour because you're in a, a hot zone, you can do that with this type of material because it's from spices, you know.
2: So if you were over there in, in a Sierra Leone or, or Guinea... Uh, Dr. Cass, uh, how would you be employing this? You, you, you would um, obviously you'd be wearing the hazmat suit. Uh, you
4: mean if I was treating an outbreak? Yeah, I mean you'd wear the appropriate. You'd be conscious of hand washing before and after gloves in any case. But uh, I would be using the Germa cleanse, uh, spraying it all around and about. I would be taking if I was in a real hemorrhagic virus zone. I'd be taking the oil of oregano under the tongue on the hour. Ten or twenty drops, or on the half hour, and I would be popping those irregares capsules, and that's all I would do. I don't want to overload my. I want something effective and consistent, um, and that's what I would be taking.
2: And you know, if you it, encountered a, a patient uh, who uh, obviously was, you know, uh, suffering from Ebola, um, how would you treat that? Obviously, well, we can't make I had claims. But...
4: success with SARS. You know that was 20% fatal plus in some care areas. Um, and what I did, of course, I haven't seen the case of Ebola, but what I would do with either of them, and more so with Ebola, I would be giving the oil of oregano. I'd be giving the P7-3. I wouldn't use the off-brands. I'd either use the Vividus or P7-3, and I'd be giving it every five or ten minutes under the tongue. And that's the kind of protocol you need because these are potentially fatal You know, up to 50 to 80% in some of these things. And uh, I would be also giving those capsules on the half hour. I would be misting them with this wild oregano-based spray. I would be rubbing the chest um, with the oil of oregano where the lymphatic ducts dump just above the clavicles and have the nurses or whatever rub them up and down the spinal column and also rubbing the shins where the lymphatic vessels can pick it up easily because it's so superficial. I mean, that's the protocol that I found to be effective for pneumonia, for SARS, for terrible cases of influenzae, and it's just another virus, just more fatal because of the shock that, you know, that, that develops. To it, try to prevent the hemorrhagic, I would try, if I had it available, i use natural vitamin C, whether
2: from lemons or limes or for camo camo, if I had it, I'd give them that too. And, uh, is it the, It's the wild oregano that, that, for example, grows in the mountains around the Mediterranean, that that's the potent stuff, right?
4: That's the potent stuff when it's extracted by steam, and there's now, of course, a lot of talk about that in Canada. But I tell people, get the edible wild oregano oil, uh, which is this oregano, P7-3. And, uh, you know, use that aggressively as you need to. I've got the winter coming. We've got going back to school, hitting. You've got some bizarre chest thing already going on. You want rid of it. You have to be aggressive. It's not going to work to do chicken soup. That's just an adjunct. You need the oil of oregano to get
2: the job done. Uh, I mentioned this to you once uh, before, in fact, the last time we spoke, uh, I was doing this show uh, f- uh, from Greece, which is was very appropriate because uh, they were just harvesting uh, the the wild oregano up uh, up in the mountains there yeah. and uh, I told you the story of uh, one of my little guys uh, this was uh, he might have been two or three and he had a fever he it was uh, so high and, and you know as a a new parent, you get alarmed you, you don 't realize children they, their, their, their temperature spikes from time to time, but he was um, he was almost hallucinating, yeah. and uh, very worried about him. And I, uh, you had given me the last time we had visited, you had given me some of this uh, wild oregano, and I rubbed, uh, just like you said, I rubbed it up and down his spine and on the balls of his feet. And he had also this uh, developing this, I think it was whooping cough. I'm not sure, which is also very frightening. It, it sounded like it was developing into a, a whooping type cough, and I thought, oh boy, here we go. You know, we're in for a scary ride. Uh, the next morning. Nothing. I mean, the cough was gone. Finished. Yeah. Unbelievable.
4: No, we've got to always keep your family supplied with this. You know, you're an internationalist like me. Uh, I don't, I just don't get junk. Uh, And that's, uh, but, but I did get Lyme disease, though. You know, I was busy in the woods. I wasn't taking the oregano. I got hit with a couple of deer ticks, and that was pretty, pretty awful miserable, so I'm writing a book, Natural Cures for Lyme. I figured out the best diet for Lyme because I was struggling. I, you know, I, I must say I did use the oregano and some other things to cure myself, but it was a difficult thing to get rid of.
2: Did you catch it early enough, or? Would, did
4: no, you- I got the big bullseye rash. I was almost dying. I got the neuroborreliosis. You know, it went into my brain and spinal cord, and I had to use four or five different things to get cu- to even begin to get cured. Um, I had the bullseye rash the size of a flattened football on my back. So I, well, I took huge do- do- doses of this super strength p 73 Knowing that it's totally edible, I could take as much as I wanted. At one point, I drank a bottle a day, which is 850 drops.
2: Oh, my Lord.
4: And, uh, and I took this orega I took the wild turmeric. It's called Turmerol. I used the chaga for strength and the juice of oregano. That was my protocol along with an aggressive change in diet. I ate a, my body wanted cartilage and things like chicken skin and, you know, eating the ends off of bones and meat and meat drippings and, you know, vegetables. And that's all my body wanted. So I switched over to that and I, I recovered.
2: You know. Well, you were lucky in the sense that uh, because my understanding is there are there are two types of, of ticks. One where you get the bullseye, which at least you know you've been infected. But there are t- ticks that don't leave that telltale sign, and so there are people who go months, maybe even years, uh, before they they realize something is wrong, and right. by then. Uh, they're real. They're really in trouble in right, terms of they could Lyme have disease.
4: Cardiac Lyme, and they didn't know, and they could have the Ar- Lyme arthritis, just like when Lyme first broke out. Uh, they could have uh, Lou Gehrig's. They could have Bell's palsy. They could have MS-like symptoms. And you're right. Now, this is a miserable disease. This Lyme. This is you know they're talking Ebola. We should be talking Lyme.
2: Uh, it it. I couldn't open my mouth. It attacked my jaw joints. Yeah, this Uh, is a real epidemic. I mean, and it's undiagnosed and it's undeclared, but it's a real epidemic in North America.
4: It is, and they they say, oh, it's not in the Canadian ticks. It is, too. And then you have Ehrlichia, and you have Babesia, and so you've got all these co-infections. What is a tick? It's going to pick up everything from a rodent and a deer, whatever, and it's going to have it in its blood. It's going to inject you. You think it's just going to be a Lyme bacillus? That's ridiculous. So in any case, uh, what um, what I, I also my elbow swelled up looked like, I've got a picture of it looked like I have, I was holding a grapefruit on my elbow. Uh, what else? My I couldn't move my ankle. When I my knee swelled up so much, you didn't know this that I couldn't move. I had to have people move me to the bathroom and to, and I was in a wheelchair for about three four weeks.
2: I had no idea. I mean, because you're in a high risk uh, as the health hunter. I mean, you're stomping around in the boreal forests and everything. Uh, I'm surprised you never, you never had it before.
4: Well, I may have, uh, but uh, this was a real bad one. See, what I did was I, forg- I, I didn't see any more ticks. And so I, that last day, I didn't put my socks over my, my pants. I always do that. And uh, I think I got a couple of them. And then a week later, boom, I'm finished.
2: It can also so, present as rheumatoid arthritis, can it? Uh, yeah, that,
4: that's kind of how it presented with me. I couldn't move a couple of joints very well. And then I got this burning sensation on my back. and Oh, I don't feel good. This is weird. My head feels weird. My Everything's weird. And, oh, what is this? And I turn around in the mirror, and this bullseye rash is massive, you know? Uh, it's Lyme disease. And so, Boy, I tell you what. Uh, I'm glad I'm writing this book because I can write it from my heart. For, for 90 days, I didn't know what was going on with my body. But I took such massive amounts of this uh, protocol, I pulled myself back out of this. And one of the things is I had one psoriatic patch left from the old days when I had gotten sick when we first discovered the oregano. And the massive doses of the oregano cured that psoriatic patch.
2: So it was a nice side effect. You mentioned turmeric earlier, uh, and um, I'd like to know more about this because I've, I've heard um, some amazing things uh, about um, some of the properties in turmeric. Tell me about this.
4: Turmeric is a COX-2 inhibitor plus. It, it blocks the inflammatory cascade in the joints and in the muscles and the nervous system. It's a, it's a tremendous divinely given medicine, the results are pretty good sometimes spotty depends on the quality of the product they found that it fights Alzheimer's and helps regenerate the memory capacity Um, but we found wild turmeric we found that in India and we got some villagers to pick it and then it's extracted with steam and carbon dioxide over there and it's probably about I'd say 5 or 10 times more powerful than than the typical turmeric capsules so, uh, the following diseases I've had benefit with low back, uh, lumbago, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, now with me with the Lyme arthritis, sciatica, neuralgia, Alzheimer's, dementia, multiple sclerosis, uh, you know, fibromyalgia. Those are the things I've used it for thus far.
2: Now, uh, is it similar in uh, in, uh, in the sense is, is it similar to oregano in the sense that you can take as much as you want or yeah, are there some can, side effects
4: well turmeric is even more i mean you probably could take even more turmeric than oregano because it's it's not so hot and it doesn't kill the, the the good bacteria where if you take sometimes excessive amounts of oregano oil you have to back it up with healthy bacteria sometimes but you you know turmeric is a food it's in curry powder you know what i mean um. yeah and this is called Turmerol I have it right here and this has been helpful for the Lyme arthritis amongst other things
2: it's an anti-inflammatory basically
4: yeah that's his big claim to fame also it has some uh, novel properties on the brain to block the uh, sort of dementia or uh, aging process
2: and uh, are there are there um, um, sort of you know, scientific studies on this?
4: In fact, the majority of the studies seem to be, uh, well, there's a lot of studies on on joint, but the majority of new studies are pointing towards this cognitive function benefit. Now, there are a lot of studies on turmeric as an anti-inflammatory. Just as there are a plethora of of research on the oregano oil as an antifungal, antiviral, antibacterial, antihistamine, anti-mold, uh, and, and as, in particular, a very effective viricide, meaning it you
2: know, kills viruses. Uh, we'll take a time out when we come back. I, I, I want to stick with turmeric just for a few more moments because I'm fascinated about the uh, the potential uh, for turmeric in, in treating things like Alzheimer's and dementia. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Cass Ingram, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Dr. Cass Ingram, A.K.A. the Health Hunter, is uh, with us, and uh, we've been discussing uh, natural protocols to treat uh, various uh, um, viruses, dengue fever, uh, and the potential um, for a uh, natural protocol to be used against hemorrhagic fevers like Ebola. Now, uh, we were talking about turmeric as well. Now, this is an, this is an ingredient that's been used in India in, in their cooking for for five thousand years and my understanding is that according to epidemiological studies uh, of Indian populations, they have a remarkably lower prevalence of Alzheimer's disease uh, relative to Western nations, so it it, it must be the turmeric. Well,
4: it has to be, you know, it's a lipophilic, which means that it loves to get into the lipid layer, which is the brain, you know, it's lipid, it's cholesterol, and you've got to penetrate that, and so by basically having a curry brain, you uh, currized, you, you prevent the free radical formation, that oxidative stress, the brain uses a lot of oxygen, the amyloid deposits, the plaques uh, that you see in Alzheimer's. But there's a good study here by uh, Mishra and colleagues showing that uh, that when they gave the curcumin or the turmeric, whatever, they they, they they shut down these plaques, they delayed the destruction of the neurons, it chelated out the metals, it shut down the inflammation, it uh, increased the memory in Alzheimer's disease patients. <laughs> so it's not too bad.
2: So not, not, a, not a cure, but it may prove useful in perhaps slowing the progression of the disease, but better yet, if we, you start taking it earlier, it's preventative.
4: Yeah, and there is some pretty good research on this where they consistently take it and the memory improves, and so that's reversal of some of the disease. Uh, But yeah, there's a lot of preventive aspects. Now, there was another good uh, uh, investigation where it was found that this really helps with neuropathy, neuralgia, sciatica, which has been my experience in particular the turmerol as sublingual drops and also as capsules. So I like it as as the premier treatment for any kind of neuropathy or nerve damage or traumatic nerve damage or even trauma to the brain or trauma to the spinal cord, along with chaga. I found that chaga, we've talked about before, the sublingual drops is also effective.
2: Uh, just remind us uh, uh, about uh, chaga. This is um, it's, it's it's a fungus, right? That grows on on trees.
4: Well, they think it's a fungus. It's pretty bizarre, though, isn't it? It's hard as a rock. You have to basically knock it off with a hammer and a chisel. Uh, it has a little teeny mold kind of fungus smell, but it's more of like a food, uh, you know. And uh, it's well, chaga is very high in superoxide dismutase (SOD), which is a big antioxidant. And then it has the beta-glucan, and it has the sterol. So it was a great combination with the turmeric, where you take the turmeric, you take, I mean, the Turmerol, the you take the Chago Power Drops or the Chagamax Max capsules as a one-two punch. Now, I will tell you, and that's for nerve problems, brain problems, Alzheimer's, senility, dementia, I will tell you that... Uh, we saw a, a, a dramatic case of a 94-year-old woman who was set, who was in a nursing home who took the chaga max capsules, which is chaga with oregano, and chaga drops under the tongue, and she her memory suddenly, after about 40 days, came back to normal, and her daughter um, uh, disconnected her from the nursing home. She took her
2: home. <laughs> my oh my, 94. And what about so, the chaga tea uh, i I have some chaga tea I bought at a, at a health food store. yeah, the chaga tea's great.
4: My favorite is this chago charge or the chaga black powder and you or whatever tea you find, and you just take that regularly yeah uh, as an anti aging thing uh, so you take the tea, maybe the drops and the capsules that's kind of what I do right now. now okay. I also eat the chaga chunks those are delicious and uh they give me a chaga in a way that I can consistently kind of snack on it, and that's a cocoa butter carob chaga
2: combination. But this chaga. this chaga is not easy to find, right? This is it grows mainly on is it birch trees? Right. I mean, there are some parts
4: of Canada that it's there, but there's other parts. Like I looked for about a week in one part of Canada, found two or three. It's a birch tree thing, and uh, it's not that common. But there are some areas that birch tree grows and then dies within 60, 70 years or is harvested, 80 years, something like that. And so you're always having a renewable source. So if you find the right forest, you might find it. But uh, no, it's not easy to find.
2: And and this is something that the tree seems to produce. Let's say the tree, um, I don't know, is struck by lightning or there's some – so the tree is producing this chaga. It's almost yeah. like scarification.
4: Yeah, I've seen trees where uh, one part has fallen in, in against another, and the chaga will grow there, or maybe some machinery damaged a tree, the chaga will come in. Or it, as it's you know, birch, it splits in, in a place, chaga comes in. Nobody really understands it, except that when you uh, inject chaga into a sick tree, I think they used apple trees. They, it cured the apple trees of their disease. And so that's kind of what I use chaga for. You're sick, I'm going to give you chaga. I don't care what you've got. If you see me now as a doctor, you're on chaga. I'm going to give you the sublingual drops. I like the Chaga Max capsule for convenience. The tea, which is available in many forms, those are, those, that's what I've been doing with people.
2: So you've got chaga. You've got uh, uh, oregano, wild oregano extract.
4: My favorite protocol is to take the chaga. The wild oregano extract, the P73, because it's edible, we can take daily, and the uh, turmeric, uh, and finally, you know, I add in this this very fascinating product called Purely Pack, which I want to send you some of. This Purely Pack is a pack of non coal tar, non. This is a real hoax, non hexane non-petrol, non coal tar, whole food vitamins from rice bran, caruli yeast, New Zealand liver powder, camu camu, sunflower seeds, and, and no additives, no chemicals, no GMOs, you know? Uh, so this is a whole other terrible thing that people have been thinking that they can get healthy with coal tar-based vitamins, and they get sicker. You've seen the studies where they found that if someone pays no attention to multiple vitamins in B-complex, does not take these pressed pills, they live longer than the people who are taking them in large quantities.
2: Mm. All right, listen, The reason
4: uh, is the coal tar, which is a carcinogen.
2: All right, Dr. You know? Cass, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about uh, that some more. And also, uh, how, to f- how to protect our children uh, once they head back to school uh, and... Uh, Prevent uh, viruses and uh, and other illnesses that uh, invariably happen once September rolls around and they're in close proximity to to other kids. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Cass Ingram, a.k.a. The Health Hunter, right here on The Conspiracy Show. And we are covering a lot of ground tonight with uh, The Health Hunter, Dr. Cass Ingram. Uh, We we were just discussing certain additives in the multivitamins and um, coal tar. I, I wasn't aware that coal tar, C-O-A-L, coal and tar, is, is uh, one of these additives. What's the rationale for putting coal tar in your one-a-day? It's carbon, you see. You have to have carbon molecules
4: to uh, synthetically produce uh, in mass quantities your thiamins, your riboflavins, your pyridoxines, your, uh, your, uh, your various B-complex, and so forth. And, um, and, and that's just a source of those molecules. And the same with hexane. The, the, and, and that's what's used. Now, there are some vitamins that are semi-synthetic where they take like ascorbic acid from corn syrup or corn uh, starch. But they're using genetically engineered corn. There are uh, vitamin E, which is extracted from soybean oil, but it's genetically engineered soy now. What about the,
2: uh, the multivitamins for kids like Flintstones?
4: Same thing, coal tar. Oh, dear. Coal tar and petrol. Oh, dear.
2: What about artificial yeah. sweeteners, aspartame?
4: Well, that just is also uh, made from car- the carbon uh, petrol. And most drugs are made from, from petrol. So uh, you, you don't want to give these dyed, uh, artificially sweetened vitamins to your children. You're better off giving them nothing. And trying to get the vitamins from superfoods or from Purely Pack or Purely B, which is a powder from rice bran, royal jelly, and truly yeast. How can you go wrong? Or brewer's yeast. Anything but what you're taking. Right what
2: about – uh, I understand that uh, that cow livers, they grind up cow livers. These are included in, in things like vitamin B12. Uh, and these cow livers can be overloaded with steroids and antibiotics and pesticides.
4: Yeah, well, there is a little bit of that, but most of the B12 is really semi-synthetic and uh, uh, microbial produced. But you don't want feedlot organs, that's for sure. And so what what I've done is recommended this Purely Pack, which is New Zealand uh, grass-fed liver. Uh, you know, you can't go wrong there, really.
2: So yeah, we that, that so, gives you some B12. So you're saying we should be checking those one a day vitamins
4: well they're all of coal tar uh, so even if it's a health food store one a day or if it's if it's got 2000% of the RDA of B6 or B1 then that's synthetic you can't there's no way you can get that amount of vitamin B1 in a pill the pill would be a foot and a half long so there's no, i mean anything that says 500%
2: is a fake So in terms of vitamins, then, what should we be giving our children?
4: We should be using superfoods like camu camu and yeast extracts. We could give purely bee powder. It's already got everything in there to the children for the bee complex. And we could give them fish oil for the vitamin A and D, but not commercial fish oil, you'd have to go with Polar Power, which is the fatty salmon oil by North American Urban Spice, because it's the only one with vitamin A and D. Remember the cod liver oil in the old days? Oh, yeah. It wasn't synthetic. So give them the Polar Power, a teaspoon a day for the children or every other day to get their vitamins A and D, which are essential for growth and development. We used to hear about that in the 60s in the home ec. We don't hear about it anymore. And, uh, and then... Is, and then give them the purely B as a B complex. That's that's enough. You know, vitamin C from fruits, from lemons and limes, from superfoods, from camu camu, that would be fine. Vitamin E from sunflower seeds, purely E. Therefore, you got the drift, people? Do it naturally.
2: All right, uh, Cass, let's spend a few moments uh, talking about... Uh all these, uh, I call them germ bags. <laughs> Little... oh, one
4: more thing. Yes, raw honey is a good source of natural vitamins. Crude raw honey, the children will take it very well, and so is bee pollen. But go ahead about the. the...
2: When, oh, just back to the honey, uh, we talking when you say raw, you mean unpasteurized?
4: Unpasteurized, crude Canadian raw honey, or you know, imported raw honeys from like Greece or you know some remote areas. Turkey, uh, Brazil. There's all that kind of honey now available in the health stores. All
2: right. Now, it never fails. We go through the entire summer. Kids are healthy. We're healthy. And then as soon as school starts, of course, they, they bring home all these uh, germs and viruses and so forth. Uh, so, uh, first of all... Um, what are we looking at? Uh, What are the the typical uh, sorts of, uh, you know, germs, bacteria, viruses that uh, your your kids are going to encounter once they head back to school? Well,
4: vaccine virus, you can't underestimate, you know, as the kids get the vaccines and they they spread to the non-vaccinated or their other vaccinated. So uh, then there's the giardia that can occur in the daycares. That's a real problem going back to school. There are uh, molds that They can get in the schools that make them sick uh, in those kinds of environments. But the viruses are the big thing, aren't they? The cold-style viruses, the flu viruses, and uh, just not, you know, nasty garbage that the kids get. And that's completely preventable, completely, not just with the vitamins. Yeah, they need the vitamin A and D, and they need the B-complex and the C, but with the oregano, it's just that easy. If the parents just gave a couple drops of the oil of wild oregano, I recommend either the Vividus in the mass market or the the P73 in the health store, and they rub it on the feet and the shins, they're not going to get sick this winter. It's that effective as an antiseptic. They can buy the crude wild oregano capsules, the OregaResp or the Oregamax, whatever's available, open up the capsules, put it on the food, and, uh, and, and that's another option. If we, if we were to get the vitamin C in on a daily basis, they'd get less sick. That's your lemons and your limes and your grapefruits and your superfoods, like the camu camu. You know.
2: What is camu camu? Oh, you don't know. All
4: right, camu camu is a citrus-like fruit that is in the Amazon, growing wild on the Amazon River, that has 50 times more vitamin C than oranges and that's a very powerful uh, natural you know thing it's it's you're going to get that kind of dose that you get from ascorbic acid the gmo junk but it's natural uh, so on the market there's several brands i'm you know i use the purely c uh, and that's camu camu rose hips. And remember, in, the, in in Britain, when they ran out of citrus, they went to the rose hips to keep the troops strong because they knew that vitamin C is necessary for the connective tissues and for good health and for the immune system. What happened to all that knowledge? You know, instead we take these multiple vitamins with synthet- synthetic
2: C, and it doesn't do anything. Can you, you buy camu camu? Just can you buy the fruit camo camu?
4: Well, I don't know about the fruit, but you can buy the powder as a superfood.
2: Camu camu, camu camu. That's C A M U C A M U.
4: Right, right, right. The fruit's awfully sour, so they just dry it, and it's you. Uh, and you can buy either a farm-raised camu camu. I prefer the wild, so I use the purely C, which is comes in a bulk powder or capsules. And then you get the vitamin C in big doses, like five hundred percent of the RDA, which is almost impossible to get. Uh, you know from 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 things like lemons and limes, you have to do a lot of squeezing to get that amount. So I would supplement your citrus, your papaya, your strawberries, your broccoli. You know, those are all rich vitamin C sources with
2: uh, camo camo. You mentioned giardia. Now, this, that's, a, that's a, an intestinal infection, isn't it?
4: Right, and that's a daycare type of thing, fecal to fecal uh, tainted water, and it's a pretty common cause of diarrhea. So, you don't, don't want to forget that the diarrheal illnesses strike the kids quite a bit at this time of the year, too. Um, and so, you can protect against that with the oil of oregano. The oil of oregano very quickly destroys giardia very aggressive against that
2: and and for that for giardia is that under the tongue you take that under Under the tongue
4: tongue or juice or water and people when i tell you oil of oregano i don't want you buying these off brands that have populated canada that make big claims about carbacrol and aren't really telling the truth i just want you to get the edible oil of oregano don't worry about the carbacrol from the spice and that would be the vividus or the oregano but the point is it's edible from the mountains of Greece and Turkey.
2: And, yeah. and I mean, this uh, oil of oregano. This is mentioned in the Bible, right? When uh, um, uh, Moses in in uh, in, uh, in Exodus, I think they talk about uh, oil of oregano, but they call it, it something else.
4: Makes you wonder else. about that burning bush uh, too, because when you bite into some oregano, it burns, you know, in your mouth. But <laughs> but yeah, it's mostly because um, it's attributed to David. You know, purge yourself with the hyssop. And uh, probably should be attributed to God, because when you, you know, hyssop is from Esau, and Esau doesn't mean hyssop, it means wild oregano, and it means the oregano in the mountains of the Mediterranean. And uh, so, so purge is what it does. It purges toxins, it purges venom, it purges histamine, it purges viruses, bacteria, giardia, in other words, protozoans, uh, bacteria, mold, black mold, any kind of a... Except tapeworms, when you get into things like tapeworms, roundworms, you need other herbs. You need maybe some black walnut to add with the oregano. You might need some artemisia. You know, you need something that will blow those things out of there, too.
2: Now, um, with the oil of oregano, um, I happen to know a woman who's been uh, suffering from some skin cancer, and she's been applying the oil of oregano on her on her lesions, I guess you would call it, and, and having some success. Are there any, are there any scientific studies uh, that, sh- that, that demonstrate oil of, of wild oregano can be effective in treating skin cancer? I don't think there are. There
4: are some studies where you, if you put the oil of oregano with cancer in a nutrient broth, it will destroy the cancer cells. We need more studies like that. But what she could do is she could saturate a cotton and tape it. In other words, put a lot more than what she's putting and tape it on at night so she's got full contact. That should speed up the results. If she wants to ratchet this up, there is a product, I don't know how available in Canada, but I'll give you the name, called Zolvex, like dissolve. Zolvex is a uh, carbon dioxide extracted oregano And it's much more effective than oil of oregano for skin cancer or precancerous lesions. So if she could add the Zolvex to that, she would get rid of it more aggressively.
2: Uh, We've got about a minute and a half here, uh, Dr. Cass. So let's just summarize. Give us the the top, let's say, half dozen... ingredients, herbs, spices that every medicine cabinet, every uh, kitchen cupboard should have on the shelf. Okay. Well, they
4: should have some cinnamons and clove and then you could make tea with that and also those are anti-diabetic. We should have the raw honey. I like also wild oregano honey, but you can buy so many different kinds. Then you want, well, you could get some organic oregano or unirradiated oregano, but you probably should stick a bottle of the oil of oregano in that cupboard too. Uh, Make sure you've got your turmeric, your curry powder, organic, non-irradiated. If you want a kink, you know, extract, then you can put some turmerol in your cupboard. Chaga. Uh, For strength, energy, and stamina, look at the chaga, many types. Uh, I like the drops, not expensive, drops under the tongue, and also the capsules. Chaga Max capsules give you uh, chaga with birch bark and wild oregano. I would also have some ginger around for upset stomach, nausea, you know, both the powder and fresh, and for motion sickness, as well as for, like, intestinal flu. It's quite good for that, to slow things down, you know, and so on. Uh, Raw honey and ginger tea. And how about some citrus? Keep citrus around. All winter long, you'll be using your citrus. Camu Camu. And, of course, well, Camu Camu is a little high-end, but... That uh, gives you high doses of vitamin
2: C, which is brilliant. Dr. Cass, leave us with a website.
4: Uh, Well, I'm
2: knowledgehousepublishers.com,
4: but go to oreganol.com and also americanwildfoods.com.
2: Always a pleasure, Dr. Cass Ingram. Stay well, my friend. I know you will.
4: Okay, you bet. I'll talk to you soon, okay? All right.
2: My thanks to Tim Spreen for production. Back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Don't forget followthetruth.tv order your tickets 905-721-3399 25% discount if you mention the word Roswell in the meantime don't be afraid there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known what you hear in the dark speak in the light what I say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops move over Aphrodite I'm coming home good night